Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice, where we use books to make sense of the ecological crisis. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and with today's guest, Dylan Harris, we will unpack what some of the words in how I introduce the podcast actually mean. Um, what is making sense? What is a storytelling animal? Dylan Harris is an assistant professor of geography at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Um, he is also an editor of Not Afraid of the Ruins. This is a section of the um, Uneven Earth uh, environmental politics uh, publication that consists of speculative fiction, um, climate fiction, utopian fiction, um, that in, s- in different ways addresses the ecological crisis. Uh, Dylan has also contributed to Not Afraid of the Ruins. Uh, he has a short story called Odetta Odessa. We talk about it a bit in the interview, and I will link it in the episode description if you want to read it beforehand or afterwards. Not Afraid of the Ruins is also uh, soon to be a book, a collection of some of these stories on the site. Um, there's going to be launching a fundraiser for that book soon. Um, Dylan tells you in the interview some of the best ways to keep in touch with him so you know when that fundraiser is live. Um, There are a couple other co-editors as well. And uh, if you sign up for my newsletter, a link in the episode description, I will also keep you up to date on when that fundraiser is live. Okay, um, so before we start, I just want to say thank you to my Patreon supporters. Uh, This podcast is entirely supported thanks to you. and encourage anyone who wants to keep this podcast going to click on the link in the episode description to support this podcast on Patreon. Um, one of the perks for people at the Lorex tier or above is to join the monthly book club. This month, I'm very excited. We will be discussing uh, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, um, And then next month, in a nonfiction uh meeting, we will be discussing Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, which is a nonfiction book about fungus. So I'm really looking forward to both of those. You can join both in all of our meetings moving forward by signing up at our Patreon page. If you aren't yet sure whether you want to commit, um, you can sign up for that free newsletter and uh, try out one of those meetings as a free trial. So thanks so much for those who support already, and hope you enjoy the show. Not Afraid of the Ruins. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So, um, Not Afraid of the Ruins is both uh, an ongoing site where uh, fiction about ecology and climate issues has been published, but also an upcoming uh, volume where some of this is going to be collected. So could you just tell us some about that project? For sure, yeah. So this project started, God, I want to say like, almost five years ago where, um, you know, a friend introduced a friend, of course, and it sort of turned into this longer conversation of, you know, we all have shared interests in political ecology, sort of environmental justice, climate justice work, you know, post-capitalist futures, but we all also really love science fiction and and sort of have had um, different engagements with, with science fiction, you know, over our lifetimes, but ultimately all of us find it to be a very meaningful intellectual endeavor, right? So, Uh, Science fiction helps us understand or speculative fiction helps us understand sort of what post-capitalism looks like or feels like, right? It gives you sort of a visceral 
uh, understanding of that. So we started it just sort of like, well, let's see what happens. And um, maybe we'll start it as a blog, right? So Aaron, uh, who's a co-editor, had already started Uneven Earth Press or Uneven Earth, the website. It wasn't a press yet. It is now a press. We're working on it. Uh, but the website existed as sort of an infrastructure. And so we just sort of created a corner on the website called Not Afraid of the Ruins um, to just start collecting uh, speculative fiction, science fiction that address these sort of intersecting issues of climate change, political ecology, environmental justice, post-capitalism. Um, and the first round, we were just kind of like, let's see what happens, who's going to respond. And then the second round of, of, of submissions, we were a bit more intentional in terms of trying to seek out authors that weren't necessarily represented the first time. So not uh, mostly from the global North uh, or Western, you know, uh, countries. And, and that was a really successful sort of second run. And we just kept it going. And over time just kind of decided that it would make sense to do this as an anthology. And we, you know, shopped around the idea to a few different presses, but ultimately landed on the fact that we really want to do it ourselves and to make it a really beautiful, um, project that we're really proud of, right? That we have a lot of control over because uh, we have had that this whole time, right? So that's kind of where the book project came from. And, and the sort of inception of the idea itself was really just lots of us having lots of similar ideas and seeing what happens. And that's kind of where we're at still. And, and I think the book project is very indicative of that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that uh, you all had different relationships to science fiction or speculative fiction. What was your yeah. relationship coming into not afraid of the ruins. Yeah. Well, for myself, you know, I'd, I'd always grown up reading it. I love it just, you know, as a hobby or I guess uh, just something I do with my, you know, free time, but increasingly found myself um, using it in my work as well. So I'm a, I guess, geographer by training, right? I'm an academic and um, I study storytelling and climate change as sort of my research. And as a part of that, I've written on sort of speculative fiction as a tool for helping us understand uh, climate models, for example. And so um, that's kind of how I came to it, right? But in addition to that, I've also always sort of done creative writing as an outlet. Mm -hmm. um, I used to play music as well, and the two just sort of work together. Um, so yeah, and what I mentioned you know, earlier with regards to books having different relationships to science fiction, some folks, you know, study more intentionally or have, you know, worked in it more explicitly over time than I have. Uh, for me, it was more of a hobby that turned into more academic work that turned into this project. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an organic transition across those scales or I guess in levels of engagement. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's kind of where I'm coming from with it. So, uh, yeah, you talked about sort of speculative fiction as a way to think about, um, or and science fiction are often seen as ways to think about the future. Um, I... I want to talk a little bit about the story that you have written for Not Afraid of the Ruins. Right. Um, I'll put the link in, in the episode description, but it's called Odetta Odessa. Um, and I, I guess I, I don't want to give more away than you would want to give it away. So what's sort of your, your brief intro to the story, maybe? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, in, in many ways that this story has made it into the collection, right? Because... Uh, and of course, I don't think us talking about it's giving anything away because it's, you know, freely available on the internet, but uh, it's not really a, a, a science or speculative fiction story, at least in the traditional sense, right? And so um, we went back and forth, actually, those editors about whether to include it, and we decided to include it because I think it fits within the larger trajectory of the book project, which I mentioned earlier is a kind of unique uh, structure, right, mm -hmm. in terms of how we're 
creating the book. But in any case, this story, um, you know, it's a large part inspired by where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in rural Mississippi, uh, down south in the United States. And there are these two characters that were sort of in the background of my mind growing up, these two uh, sisters, actually, which is what the story is about, is these two sisters who sort of control, um, I don't want to say control, sort of uh, coexist with and can manipulate or sort of engage with nature in um, magical ways, sort of. Um, and then the story itself, right, they're sort of interacting with a policeman who's there to sort of collect some uh, taxes, I think is what it is. Yeah, overdue property taxes. re the story. Right. And so they sort of are in some ways like curse the guy and, you know, the story ensues and there's drama with regards to sort of the police and his uh, entrance back into the small town. Um, but I guess the sort of overall point of the story and why we decided to include it. And again, I encourage folks to check it out. I guess I am kind of being vague because I don't want to give away all the details, but the point of the story really aligns with one of the themes throughout the collection, which is uh, what we've sort of colloquially come to call it as old ways or sort of ancient ways of understanding environmental issues, right? Uh, which isn't to say that any of us are particularly experts in this world, but to understand that environmental knowledge persists, right? And that ancient knowledges of the environment sort of represented in uh, this story by two older sisters who sort of control or sort of have a deep relationship with nature um, and how that sort of deep knowledge persistence to the future. That's one of the main themes in the book, actually. So that's kind of where that story is coming from, is looking at sort of old magic, um, old ways of relating to nature that, again, are sort of subterranean with how we think about the present. You know, when you think about something as speculative as geoengineering, what we think is important in this collection is to consider that these very speculative technologies are built upon and largely sort of exist in relation to old ways of interacting with nature that have existed for a very long time, right? The, and they persist because they're uh, powerful. So that's kind of where that story is coming from, uh, both, you know, intellectually, but also, you know, setting-wise in terms of where I grew up and what it's about. Yeah, it's it seems to be set in the semi-recent past, and there's a lot about... Uh, how hot it is outside. And so at first I was thinking it was going to be, you know, a future climate story, but I guess it, it still gets hot now, even before the worst Well, yeah, no, for sure. Where I grew up is just always hot anyways. So that's kind of part of it. I'm glad you brought up this idea of uh, kind of old ways um, because you, in, in one of your kind of more academic writings, um, I was I was looking at before this interview. Um, you bring up this idea of what you call geological imagination, um, and how stories uh, to help us deal with like the climate crisis now. Um, it can be helpful to kind of look way back on the past of the Earth. Um, what I guess yeah, can you talk a little about why how you came to that and and why that's important. Sure, yeah. So this concept of geologic imagination was largely, um, I mean, I'm sure others have talked about it before too, but there's a a music slash arts festival that happens in the the Netherlands every year called Sonic Acts. It's like Sonic, like Sound Sonic, or I guess the Hedgehog and ACTS, I think is the name of the festival. And they published a book um, for their 2015 festival, I think, which was all based on this idea of the geologic imagination. And so you had 
uh, all kinds of scholars, thinkers, writers, artists, sort of contemplating this concept of deep time and its repercussions for understanding our position in sort of the present, but also our implications for the future, right? And so it's one way of kind of wrestling with the, you know, various intersecting and unequal realities of the apparent Anthropocene. And so in my writing, how I sort of approach this concept of geologic imagination is to understand how essentially, right, our imaginations uh, of climate change specifically are so hedged in by our limited experiences, right? Our cognitive capacities as humans that only live a relatively short amount of time are, uh, I don't want to say inevitably or sort of necessarily limited, but uh, definitely we struggle to understand, right, that the things happening in the present with regards to the climate started millions of years ago and have implications for millions of years into the future, right? And so when we think about our day-to-day actions, right, whether or not we use a straw, if we draw, if we drive an electric car, like those are very important, sure. But we have to also understand that there's a necessarily collective, cross-temporal, cross-scalar uh, understanding we need to sort of come to terms with of how climate change works. And the idea of the geologic imagination helps us sort of get there, right? It helps us think outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, uh, to exceed sort of our limits and just come to terms with them so that we can think more expansively and creatively about our relationship to the planet broadly, about climate change more specifically. Uh, and again, I find this concept to be really generative, um, particularly with regards to how, you know, the environment, or I guess when we think about the way the earth is created, right, through geology, it's stratigraphy, right, how it's layered, and how the present is a representation or a manifestation of all these layers, right, mm-hmm. and the stories we tell, at least in how I frame it to myself, are, are just another layer, right, and they necessarily have a sort of impact on the trajectory of the future as well, right, so outside of our control, and yet we know that they're connected through time, through earth time, uh, so that's, you know, several ways to think about that concept, but uh, again, I think the, the way I even answered it explains how generative I think it is and how sort of broadly applicable it is to understand several things. But um, in short, right, it's a, it's a sort of imaginative tool or register for thinking about how the past, present, and the future are all knotted together in these really complicated ways that um, are ultimately really creative as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, previous interview was with a, a science writer, uh, Riley Black, who wrote this book about the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um, and some of the most fascinating stuff there is how the um, immediate or at least, you know, relatively immediate aftermath of the asteroid hitting had effects on, uh, you know, not only those who were killed, but the species that survived and on the rest of the ecosystems that affected how, you know, those species evolved that we can still see um, the effects of that asteroid today um, in, in what species, you know, in what species evolved and what certain ecosystems look like. Uh, for sure. And that's a, a great example. I would say of geologic uh, imagination, right. For us to understand in the present that certain species like chickens or alligators have some antecedent, and geologic time, right? Due to this mm-hmm. sort of catastrophic activity. I've been on kind of a pop paleontology kick since I read that, but um, right. moving on a bit to sort of back to the, uh, the collection. Sure. Um, the, so it's, it's collecting, I, I think what, 21 stories from, from the blog. Uh, and the, 
the way you were telling me about it, um, it sounds like there's these four recurring characters who somehow um, reoccur through the book or, or guide you through the book. What can you explain that better for me? Sure. Yeah. So I mentioned this earlier too, right? We wanted this book to be very creative, right? We want it to be a very different approach to your sort of typical anthology. And, and the reason that's at least, you know, there's at least two reasons. One being that, you know, all of these stories are already publicly available, right? You can go check out our blog. I encourage anyone who's interested to do that because there's way more stories on the blog than are represented in the collection. And the sort of editorial process of choosing those 21 is a whole nother sort of interview, which I'm happy to do some other time, but it was very, you know, intentional how we came up with those 21. Mm-hmm. And again, we wanted to sort of have this collection, uh, again, not be just a re sort of telling of these stories. Uh, so again, we wanted it to be, um, different somehow so that's the first reason but the second reason we also wanted it to be very sort of fun to engage with right the whole point of our project is sort of playing with this idea that the world's ending right which is on the one hand kind of bleak of course but to really sort of get into the spirit i would say of understanding that despite world's ending or understanding that for many populations around the world you know this concept of world ending has already happened right Uh, and sort of to take to task this idea that apocalypticism is not terribly helpful for understanding things like climate change, for example. Uh, and so again, we wanted the book to be fun. So we created these four characters as sort of guides through the text. And so the book, of course, you know, you can read it from front to back, but we've also designed it so you can read it from back to front. The stories are sort of um, organized, not in terms of any sort of, thematic way necessarily, but in terms of what we perceive to be a journey from known to unknown. So if you start at the very front, the stories are sort of more grounded in reality as we currently understand it. And then the further along in the book, you get the more speculative or very different that becomes. So there's sort of this scale from known to unknown. And you can read the book that way, right? Or you can start in the unknown and come back to the known. So that's kind of your front to back, back to front reading. Okay. But we also were really intrigued by this idea of almost like a choose-your-own-adventure story. So I mentioned earlier that my character, which is the horseshoe crab, represents a theme throughout the stories, which is sort of this concept of old ways and sort of how those persist into the future. There's another character that's a gecko, another one that's a lichen, and another one that's a pig. And each of those characters represent, again, themes of uh, persistence, um, uh, sort of the ability to adapt, the ability to change over time, right? Uh, and I don't want to give too much of those characters away because that is something really unique to the collection that is not represented on the website. Right. And so at the front of the book, you'll have this like map, right, that outlines known to unknown and sort of creatively displays some of the story's elements, uh, characters, etc. But then there'll be a little legend with each of these characters and you can follow their personal stories, right? So my character, the horseshoe crab, essentially visits five stories, five or six stories throughout the text. And that's another way to read the book, right? You could pick it up and just read the horseshoe crabs stories. Okay. And then from that, gather those themes, and then you can go to the gecko or the pig. And that's kind of uh, the idea there is to, to provide multiple ways of reading and approaching the text. And that's why those four characters exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have not read all, all 21 stories, but I read a few, um, and one thing that really stood out to me is at least most of the ones that I read um, have some element, you know, including yours, of either the magical, the surreal, or otherwise 
supernatural. Um, and I think often climate and ecological issues, um, geology, ecology are, are considered or are looked at through a either technical or scientific lens um, that is often seen as, as a separate realm from maybe the more supernatural ways of, of looking. Um, yeah, I, I guess how did these um, these more supernatural themes develop and what how can these help us grapple with grapple with the problem? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think, so again, I mentioned a little bit about the editorial process of choosing these 21 stories and we really wanted to, again, winnow down from the larger collection into some, almost initially they're very intuitive themes, right? So, uh, and what you're picking up on is again, this sort of approach to supernatural or magical realism that was something we all sort of wanted to bring to the table. And I think it's exactly because of one of the tensions you're bringing up, right? So much of climate knowledge, for example, or any scientific knowledge, but specifically climate change uh, research is um, sometimes difficult to perceive because of the sort of technicalities, but also like I mentioned earlier, climate change as a concept really challenges our sort of small human brains to think at a scale that sometimes we're just not comfortable with, or I don't want to say we're not capable of, because I do think that we're capable of it. Um, So, right. So again, the intention there was to bring in magical realism very much to sort of, I don't want to say challenge, but I guess create friction with the more sort of standard understanding of ecological science or climate change, which again, tends to be very technical. Uh, For many people, it's largely inaccessible. And again, I don't think folks are incapable of understanding it by any means, but um, in my experience, right, speculative fiction, um, magical realism, for example, helps us to sort of put texture on those future scenarios of climate change, right? So we see, for example, in this IPCC report, uh, we have a whole new sort of uh, timeline. And each of those timelines comes with almost their own individual stories, which is, you know, scenarios for understanding how the economy is going to interact with the climate, which is going to interact with uh, society, et cetera. And we're just sort of, as, you know, your casual reader of that information, right? You just sort of are anticipating this future uh, without much context or texture, right? And again, I find that magical realism, speculative fiction, rather than sort of challenging or upending those more scientific understandings of the future, adds necessary dimension to it, right? It allows us to sort of see beyond the sort of X, Y coordinates of this, you know, kind of modeled climate future to see what another axis might look like, an emotional axis, for example. And again, I think that tension you brought up earlier with regards to sort of the technicalities of climate research and the sort of whimsicalness of magical realism don't often go together. Um, But I think increasingly they should, right? That's my perspective is they help us understand those things. They're not counterintuitive. They're not counterproductive, right? I think uh, uh, famous writers like Kim Stanley Robinson do this really well. And I think, you know, Octavia Butler, another writer who's inspired this project did so much research on climate change while she was writing Parable of the Sower, for example, mm-hmm. um, that that's kind of where we're coming from with all of this as well, as we really want to bring those worlds together because I find them to be very co-productive rather than antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, th- I think this is the, the 16th episode of this podcast and four of those have, have dealt primarily with uh, fiction um, interviewed fiction authors anyway, and uh, 
three of those four fiction authors that I interviewed, um, including you, have have included some elements of of magical realism in in their stories, and that's not cool. I think that I have been consciously seeking that out. Um, but I think maybe a not surprising fact of of when people are writing about these issues um, that are are so complex and sprawling that it can be helpful to bring in those playful surreal elements um, to help understand them yeah for sure i mean the you know it's so much of this work right i'm not sure what the other folks are necessarily talking about but climate change is incredibly depressing right and it, and, and it asks us the science asks us to effectively um i don't want to use the word believe uh without qualifying it here right it's not like believing or not in climate change but Believing in certain futures is part of the, the sort of paradigm, right? It's asking us to consider what, what the world might look like in 100 years, and that's really difficult to do. And I think all magical realism and, and, and sort of speculative fiction helps us do that. Mm-hmm. So the other people I interview are often uh, are typically nonfiction writers, often either talking about, you know, issues in climate policy or, or in environmental science or in animal ethics um, or issues like that. Um, and I guess sort of the flip side of the question is when we're talking about these more, I don't know, nuts and bolts issues, are there are there ways to bring story into that Um that kind of makes even the, even the you know a policy discussion, engaging or or have some narrative, um, you know even if it's not a work of fiction. Right. No, I think it has to. Right. I mean, policy is in many ways another kind of storytelling. Right. And as someone who researches storytelling, right. So I I write a little bit, but my my sort of main gig, right, as a, a researcher is to study storytelling as sort of a transformative experience for creating knowledge on complex topics like climate change and for finding meaningful ways to talk with folks who don't necessarily want to talk about it. So I spent a lot of time working in Appalachia or oil fields in Alaska with with communities that are not opposed to climate change, right? They're opposed to things like unemployment or poverty wages or sort of a failing economy. And my job is to translate how their experiences in some ways are connected to, but are also very separate from the realities of climate change, right? And that translation exercise, that work is through storytelling. And I think policy is increasingly better at that. I think the IPCC's newest uh, reports are a bit more narrative and focus, right? But at the same time, there needs to be more of a, in my mind, right? This is my opinion, obviously, a much more of an intentional engagement with storytellers and storytelling as a means of communicating these complex realities because for no other reason than what we've done so far isn't working so well, right? And I think um, policy briefs are often for, right, specific target audiences, politicians, legislators, etc. But they don't have to be, right? They can be broadly communicated. And I think storytelling uh, is really meaningful. And, and, and here, just to kind of include a caveat, right, of course, um, you've probably heard this, I'm sure your listeners have, right? There's always a sort of discussion of, you know, if you can include a personal story in uh, communication and it sort of connects with the audience better. And I think that's true, but I really want to push us as a sort of storytelling society to think about collective storytelling more so than individual storytelling, not because individual stories aren't 
useful or meaningful, right? But just because to think at the scale of climate change to address it, it's a collective concern, right? And just mm-hmm. back to the collection really quickly, this anthology we're putting out, that was very much part of our editorial process in choosing these stories was how do, the 20, how do these 21 stories in the collection not just tell individual tales, but how do they work together in sort of a collective consciousness way to communicate a much more abstract uh, idea of ruins and the future and possibility rather than just sort of a single story, right? Um, so that was a, a really long roundabout answer to your question, but I do think uh, if we consider policy just another way of making meaning, another means of telling stories, just like science or anything else, which isn't to say they're not true, I'm not invalidating them, right? It's just a means of how we connect with and communicate things to one another. Um, we need to get a lot better at that, I think, across the board and not just leave it to storytellers. That makes sense. Uh, I, I want to ask about the title of the blog um, and of the and of the anthology. Um, where does where does not afraid of the ruins come? It's a very evocative image. Right. Uh, where does it come from? No, it's a good question, and it's funny. Uh, as editors, we are in the process of writing um, sort of the epilogue to the collection, which we intentionally sort of waited to the last minute to do because we wanted to sort of include our experiences of creating this collection to be part of that discussion. And so as a part of that process, we sort of went back to our earlier emails of the idea of the title, right? And some of the earlier titles, you know, were goofy, of course, right? And (laughs) and we really went back and forth. And I'm trying to think of one in particular, but there was one called like the Cosmic Jacuzzi or something was one of the original (laughs) ones. Um, But we landed on Not Afraid of the Ruins largely because it, I think, represents what we want to be talking about in a very sort of straightforward way. Um, it's sort of a take on uh, sort of a combination of Ursula Le Guin's writing and Octavia Butler's writing, but several writers who we look up to who sort of take ruins as a site of exploration, right? Not ruins as sites of sort of dispossession or despair, but ruins as sites of possibilities and hope. And to qualify hope a bit, right? Not hope in something prescriptively better right? But something, uh, hope in something very different. And that's the whole idea of Not Afraid of the Ruins is that our stories in the collection aren't necessarily outlining prescriptively better futures, right? But they are very, very different than what we have in the present. And there's hope in that, right? Uh, And sort of doing something very different. And so Not Afraid of the Ruins is very much this idea that um, if we want to consider the present ruins, or if we want to think about ruins of the future, and that's sort of a personal... I guess, take on that, that I'll let listeners come to terms with on their own. But if, if you think of either the present or the future as ruins, the whole point of not being afraid of it is, again, to think of them as spaces of um, possibility, hope, uh, regrowth, regeneration versus sort of despair, apocalypse, dispossession. Um, and so it's it's a play on words, right? Because ruins are typically associated with bad things, but right. we really want to sort of lean into these other authors that have, again, used them as sites of better things and persistence. That's really sort of key here. Right. I think there, in, in my mind, in, in addition to kind of what you were saying, one of the ideas that jumped to me when I was thinking about it is just like one day, uh, you know, the the world we live in now will be a ruin to the future in some way. And yeah. like you know if things go poorly it could be sooner rather than later right but 
regardless this idea that actually I can believe that some future where all of this is but a ruin is actually a good thing, not because ideally there was some horrible collapse or anything. There was, hopefully it was a, a, a nicer transition than that, but just right. that the belief that we can improve upon what we have, like that, you know, we can have a world where we're like, oh yeah, that, you know, I'm glad we are in this one and not that old one. For sure. Yeah. And there's, again, so much research, uh, for even, you know, in sort of the humanities, but also in the sciences too, and sort of how blasted landscapes or ruined landscapes, which are sort of created through various means of capital's accumulation or, uh, you know, nuclear waste storage or whatever, that even in those spaces, uh, there are positive things. There's growth, right? There are things growing. Mm-hmm. There are uh, sort of really special novel things happening in those spaces. So again, uh, the sort of, uh, area around Chernobyl, for example, having been untouched since the meltdown in, in you know, 87, I believe. Um, even in that space, there are uh, sort of hopeful things. And again, I don't want to overqualify hope here as, again, things that are good, but things that are different, things that surprise mm-hmm. us, things that are still meaningful, regardless of whatever disaster happens to be taking place. And again, mm-hmm. I think that that's what's really encouraging is to keep that in mind, uh, because things are uh, complex, right? Things are rough in the present, and to consider that even in sort of difficult times or areas, uh, you know, ecologically or otherwise, that there are still novel, just little snippets of what could be otherwise. I think that's really the point there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the plan, I under, I mean, people can read most or all of these stories on the blog now, um, but uh, without the sort of the fun new features of the anthology. So so you said you're finishing up the epilogue. The plan is to launch a, a crowdfunder as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I mentioned this earlier, right? We, we shopped the idea around to a few different presses and, and got some relatively positive feedback, but just kept coming back to ourselves and thinking, you know, we want this project to be representative of our, of our process, right? And to be a very creative output. And so we had been thinking about it for quite some time, but um you know, the editors, along with some other folks more involved in the Uneven Earth website, uh, decided that it makes sense to launch a press, right? That this book can just be the first book of many, hopefully many that are similar, right? Creative, beautiful, right? We want the book to be really beautiful and tangible and, and fun to hold. Um, and we really want to focus on uh, this kind of concept of slow scholarship, right? As editors, we want to take on book projects that are exciting to us and that, you know, could take some time. So all this to say, we, we incorporated as a nonprofit press earlier this year on even earth press. Um, and the idea now is to, again, like you said, launch this crowdfunder to uh, raise funds for a few different things, right? So largely for the, the not afraid of the ruins anthology, we want to pay our contributors. Um, we want to make sure we're paying the artists who are doing a lot of the art for the book cover, drawing the characters, all the maps and things on the inside. Um, we're in the process of deciding how we want to publish it, right? As to being as sort of ecologically friendly as possible, which in the publishing world these days means more expensive. So we're sort of weighing the pros and cons of that process, but the crowdfunder is ultimately to help us launch the press, right? And along with that, uh, setting aside funding to help pay for um, translation, for example, uh, we want to make sure we include voices from 
um, countries where English isn't a first language and we want to be able to contribute uh, or I guess um, have them contribute back to our press in really meaningful ways and we want to be able to pay for that, right? So the, the, the crowdfunder will be launched relatively soon. We haven't picked on an exact date yet, uh, but probably this summer. And, uh, you know, like any other crowdfunder along the way, if you donate however much money, you'll get certain things. So we've actually created uh, zines at each character in our anthology sort of has a standalone story arc, right? And so we're in the process of creating these really beautiful zine projects where you can, you know, donate whatever amount of money and you get the horseshoe crab story sort of chat book. Okay. Um, one of the other editors is designing these really cool uh, handmade clay figures, right? So all kinds of uh, fun stuff is coming up with the crowdfunder, but it's to help us get the book out for sure, but it's largely to help launch the press as well, which is, again, in service to creating more creative projects, um, scholar activism from around the world, political ecology con uh, sort of contributions from folks who, again, don't necessarily uh, get represented as much. That's sort of our long-term plan. Nice. Um... You mentioned doing research in, in Appalachia and Alaska. Um, you On your, your website, you talk about other places you've been uh, studying, you know, or researching the use of story and relationships between humans and, and their environment. Um, so I, I guess I, I'm hesitant to sort of ask you to like sum up your entirety of your academic research in three <laughs> right. bullet points. Um, but I guess I'm just curious, like, are there themes that come up when you talk about story with people in different places? Are there things that you've taken away to, you know, to introduce into your your other work um, or your own work? Are there, yeah. what are, I guess, <laughs> I guess summarize your academic career in three bullet points. No, but. Um... Yeah, no, for sure. No, it's a good question. You know, and it's for me, right, I have been doing this intentionally for you know maybe seven or eight years but uh, as it turns out I've been sort of dealing with research and storytelling for almost 14 years at this point and that started when I was an undergrad and I won't get into all the details but uh, just sort of, sort of by way of example I was doing some research that felt very difficult right I was working uh, with the community of sort of exiled political prisoners and again not to give too many details away because I don't want to name names etc but again you can look at my website and figure this stuff out too, but it was that experience of sort of being in over my head as a researcher, as a very young person that I sort of gravitated to stories as a very intuitive way to connect with people. It's always been very intuitive to me given kind of where I grew up and how I grew up. And um, that theme, I guess, has sort of persisted, right? Almost by accident that for me, storytelling is a really simple and very meaningful way to connect with people about very complex ideas. And I spent a lot of time over the past five years working with specific communities of storytellers. So I worked in Appalachia, like we were talking about, and there, rather than sort of entering those conversations with a very particular definition of storytelling, I worked with storytelling communities, right? So folklorists, how do they define it? How would they talk about climate change? And from that sort of work, I've just kind of come to define storytelling for myself as making sense, right? Sense-making. And I think that's ultimately what it is. And I think in my work on climate change, it's been really helpful for helping people come to terms with talking about climate change, again, in communities where it's difficult to do that, to sort of not bypass or step around the difficult political conversations, but to sort of work through them in a very collaborative way. Storytelling is very collaborative, right? Uh, and in my contemporary work, or I guess current work uh, in Colorado, where I currently live, 
I'm applying the same sort of process to energy transitions. So thinking about sort of um, communities across the state or across the West that are sort of going through profound shifts in their energy production and how things like closing a coal mine leads to less taxes and how can stories help us communicate these very complex needs and desires uh, to policymakers like we we're talking about earlier. So um, that's kind of where it comes down to, right? Is storytelling helps us communicate complex ideas to other people, right? And it's very collaborative. It's very co-productive. And I think, um, like I said earlier to you, the sort of emphasis in my work on the collective is very important. Not because, again, I'm opposed to individual stories, but because I think to address something at the scale of climate change or energy transitions, uh, the collective is really needed. And I like to sort of focus on that in my work as best I can. I'm glad that you included kind of your definition of, of storytelling as, as right. sense-making. Um, Cause I feel like I've been taking for granted this entire interview, um, you know, a, a sense of what a story is and what storytelling is. But now I'm, I'm sort of thinking like, what is a story? Yeah. I mean, God, it's a profound question, right? It's almost existential. It's like a ontological question. And it's something that when I started my research uh, for my PhD, again, about five or six years ago, six years ago, that was the exact same question I had, right? It's like, how can I operationalize this term that we throw around loosely, right? It's a very intuitive concept. We know what it means to tell a story, but when you really start to dig in, it becomes more and more profound. And when I would talk to, again, specific storytellers who practice storytelling, who are paid to do it, when you really ask someone to define it, it gets incredibly complicated. And I think, uh, you know, folks who have been doing this for decades really kind of have to sit back and think through, you know, exactly your question. Like, what actually is a story, right? What does it mean to be a storyteller? What is our role socially, right? What is the story's role historically? And for myself, again, I just kind of keep coming back to this idea that it's sense-making. And, and I come to that because for myself, as someone who studies climate change and sort of energy and environmental issues – you know, non-humans make sense too, right, of their worlds. And so mm-hmm. what do non-human stories look like? And what do sort of non-traditional stories look like and things that aren't necessarily read on a page in a book or uh, performed on a stage, right? And I think that there are ways to see how others are making sense. And that is, to me, storytelling. Yeah, the the title of this podcast is Storytelling Animals. Right, and right. that's sort of precisely the ambiguity I want to play on is that human animals tell stories in a particular way and I'm going to be talking with humans who tell stories and thus are storytelling animals um, but also want to make sure that we're including plural animal stories um, sure. and the other ways in which the other than human makes sense of this world um, but yeah it's just such a such a huge issue the climate crisis and ecological crisis and we're looking billions of years in the past and um you know our current effect on the climate is going to go probably minimum thousands of years in the future um have some effect and it's just so much to make sense of that definitely there are a lot of stories to tell for sure and i would say it's almost again irresponsible for us as humans to not consider what other kinds of creatures, non-humans, what kinds of senses they make. If we want a clear picture of climate justice, for example, we need to, of course, focus on, uh, you know, our other humans who are definitely impacted, right? The unequal impacts and differential impacts of climate change are certainly important. 
but to but to tell a larger story, right? To understand a larger picture of how the ocean works, for example, and its ocean sort of impact on our weather patterns, et cetera. Thousands of years into the future, again, I think it's very irresponsible for us to not consider how other beings tell stories um, and how to listen to those because I think we have a lot to learn, right? Um, so that's kind of my take on that as well. Are horseshoe crabs being affected by human activity? You know, it's interesting. Uh, yes. So um, there's a collection that came out. Uh, I think University of Minnesota Press put it out in 2017 called, uh, it's kind of like this double book that was also a big inspiration for us called Monsters of the Anthropocene and Ghosts of the Anthropocene. And there's sort of two sides to the book. And there's a chapter in there, I forget which side of the book, on horseshoe crabs, the sort of synchronicity and how conservation practices tend to focus on one particular era or one particular ecosystem. But Horseshoe crabs are a large part of the diet of this particular bird that migrates up and down South and uh, North America. And they need horseshoe crabs to basically um, continue their journey, right? And so if we're talking about conservation, this is the point of the article or chapter of the book, which I'm looking around me and I can't find it. So I feel bad for not knowing the author at the top of my head. But um, basically, if you remove horseshoe crabs from that equation, you ruin the whole migration chain, right? So the whole point is to reframe sort of conservation in the Anthropocene. And horseshoe crabs are actually being impacted in really profound ways. So climate change to an extent, but the largest set of horseshoe crabs is actually folks sort of um, taking them because their blood can be used in various medications. Um, wow. It's blue. The blood's blue. Um, but they're one of the oldest creatures we have, right? They're literally these like, oh, they're borderline aliens, but just from the past instead of the future, uh, right? They're so weird looking. Uh, they're very unusual in how they move around and again they're even their blood's blue right and how it's used in medication etc the, there's all kinds of issues with conservation of horseshoe crabs at the moment for sure i'm gonna have to link to a youtube video of horseshoe crab moving around for the yeah, audience they're weird especially if you flip them over they're like they literally look like aliens it's pretty wild <laughs> um how if people want to i mean they can read some of the stories at the blog now if is there a way for people to uh, keep up with Uneven Earth where they're low when the, the crowdfunder launches? For sure, yeah. So I think, you know, there's obviously Twitters and things that exist, social medias um, abound for our project. But I guess the most important space to keep an eye on is the Uneven Earth press, or Uneven Earth, I keep saying press, but Uneven Earth website. Uh, and there'll be more information forthcoming from there, right? Each of us, each of us editors will also be sort of discussing this through listservs and social medias. Um, so, uh, you know, you can follow me at Twitter. I'm Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N-M-A-T-T Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, all one word, Dylan Matt Harris. Um, or email, right? You can find me if you just kind of Google Dylan Harris, you'll, you'll find me. But I think the best place to keep an eye on things is either us individuals, if you know us, or if you want to get to know us, hello, we'd love to be friends. But <laughs> also through um, the website, Uneven Earth. Uh, right now is probably the best place to keep an eye on it. Cool. Is there anything else you want to add? I think that's it. Thanks for the interview. And I, again, I'm excited for this project. It's been a long time coming. And what's been really beautiful about it is that at no point in time has it felt stressful, right? This project's been very much a labor of love. It's been very much something each of us agree is really meaningful and important. And that's sort of driven us to create this really beautiful project that we're really excited to share with everyone because it's not been um, typical. No, no part of the stage has been very, or I guess no stage of the process has been very typical. And I think that's going to show in the final product. So I'm excited to share it with everyone and sort of 
again, communicate that this was very much a labor of love and um, something we're all just really excited about. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. Yeah, so we may not know what stories are, but you can read a bunch of them at uh, the No or the Not Afraid of the Ruins website. Um, I'll I'll update listeners to. Uh, you can sign up for my email newsletter, um, and I'll let you all know when the the uh, fundraiser is live. In addition to when my new episodes are out, um, and Dylan Harris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course, thank you so much. That was Dylan Harris, a co-editor of Not Afraid of the Ruins. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sending it to a friend or family member who you think might enjoy it as well. Um, We're a young podcast, and any help you can provide in getting the word out um, is very much appreciated. Have a good one. Thank you.